You are now locked into Radio Juxtapose, the home of contemporary art and culture conversation. Coming up today. With regard to health stats, I don't know if you know what's happening as we speak, but the Navajo Nation is being ravaged by coronavirus. We are um, a pandemic hotspot. If people are still having to haul water, you know, there's not going to be as stringent hand washing happening in those households uh, as maybe should be. So yeah, as we speak, that infection is really doing, is doing a number on the reservation. This is Radio Juxtapose. Another week's gone by and the world is still in chaos. Of course, I don't need to remind you about that fact. Every single one of us will have a different story to tell, a different experience of how they'll remember the coronavirus. And for many of us, it'll be stories about boredom from watching Netflix, from the comfort of our flats. We've not quite been given the zombie apocalypse The Walking Dead promised us. In fact, this might be one of the most boring pandemics ever. But there's certainly some comfort in the banality of it all. Our guest on today's episode of Radio Juxtapose is an artist, an activist and a photographer that just so happens to be a physician in the centre of the Navajo Nation in Arizona. On today's episode, we're going to learn what took a young postgraduate medical student from North Carolina into the heart of the Diné tribe. More importantly, we're going to learn what kept him there for 30 years. If this is your first time listening to the Radio Juxtapose podcast, and thanks for downloading every week or so, Juxtapose Magazine's Evan Preco and myself, Fifth Wall TV's Doug Gillen, link up with a guest from somewhere around the world, somewhere across the artistic spectrum to talk about life, art careers, and a lot more. We've got a quietly growing back catalogue of episodes for you to work through. So if you're trying to kill some time during this lockdown, then I'm sure there's something out there for you. Thank you to all the regular listeners for your continued support. I know both Evan and myself love to read through the comments and see what you guys are saying and the support, it does mean a lot to both of us. We'll get into the interview with Chip in just a minute. Before we do that, I wanted to spend a bit of time grilling Evan on his knowledge of the Native American story. If you're an artist listening to this, make sure you stay on after the interview and you'll hear some news of a big competition both Evan and myself are involved with. I don't want to give too much away, but there's a huge cash prize. Anyway, enjoy the show. As a physician whose job it is to heal people, to make people feel better, to diagnose people, to to care for people, in using art as well, it's like it's that brings back that conversation of what's art's actual intention for society, and especially public art in this sense. Like what is its function? And it's like we're gonna get into these conversations about healing and care and in the you know, I think that's I mean, deep down, I think that's what you and I love about public art, street art, however you want to call it. Um, and I think this is going to be great. I, I just, I'm excited just to hear him talk about how he ended up in that part of, I assume he still li- he lives in Arizona. And I, I also, I, I want to use this opportunity too uh, with Chip is to sort of explain, because I actually, as an, as an American, I don't, I don't know how the rules work. When America goes under shelter in place, how does the reservation respond? Like, what are the rules and governing kind of bodies there? And what what rules do they abide by? 
and how does it have to be re-implemented in a different way on a reservation than it is in you know uh on the united states grounds because i don't actually know how that works just before we go into this conversation i'm going to put you on the spot what's your understanding like generally about the navajo nation and what that encompasses and the kind of the history and the detail there you know uh, what i know and and you're going to speak for general america here yeah well i i might know more or less but uh i my understanding is the navajo reservation and the land that the navajo have is 10 i think it might be the largest in the united states for an indian tribe i believe um and i i think it's mostly arizona and i you know, he might have to clarify. It might be a little bit of New Mexico. It might be a little bit of Utah and Colorado, but I think it might just be Arizona. Um, but uh, I actually don't know much about. I know more about like some local tribe stuff here in Northern California because uh, it's it's really close to where my parents live, so I know a lot of stuff about that. But I don't know much about the Navajo. Um, I just know that it's one of the largest. What's your area? What what if it's if you if in California Northern California if it's not Navajo I'm putting you in the spot now. Well, okay. So when you when you when you break down like the major when you like if you were to talk to any school ch- you know children who learn about um, Native Americans and reservations Navajo Cherokee the Sioux like those are kind of the bigger the bigger names uh, or like the bigger tribes that you would learn. Um, you didn't really learn much about the ones in Northern California. Because, because they're just they're smaller, just smaller, and, just smaller and yeah. Indigenous. And it's weird how like Indian reservations were always nest, like kind of in more ways than one were a little bit. Or I guess you would know about the Seminoles too in Florida. But you, they were basically like a lot of the stuff is like if you went to Arizona, or if you went to Utah, or if you went to New Mexico, like reservations were way more part of the culture okay. than they were here. And and that would change from state to state the relationship that they have. Yes, but I in Arizona, Arizona is a really weird state because Arizona is conservative and yet they have such a large population of Native Americans, of Latinos immigrating over the border. And my conversations I've had with people who live in metropolitan Arizona, Phoenix or Tucson, or to a greater extent in the north, um, they don't have they, they have more liberal leanings and they don't have a problem. But then they vote so conservative. So I don't quite understand how the state politics. Even in the major cities? Yeah, it's a weird thing. I don't know if it has to do with like old, older folks retiring into these areas. I'm not sure. I, you know, to be honest, I don't know much about the state of Arizona, except for the fact okay. that northern Arizona is like incredibly beautiful and there's a rich uh, Native American history there. Which you're going to learn about today. Yeah, I'm here on the Navajo Nation in northern Arizona in the Four Corners region of the United States. For Doug, that means Utah, Colorado, New Mexico, Mexico yeah. Arizona. Yeah. <laughs> Boom. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I forgot that this is an, an international audience. Exactly. <laughs> what exactly is that then? Not geographically, but in terms of concept. The Four Corners? The Navajo Nation. Yeah, so as uh, part of the westward expansion that happened in the United States in the uh, 1800s, um, different tribes, uh, First Nation people, uh, were encountered by the settlers who were traveling west. 
And in order to realize what was considered manifest destiny, the uh, U.S. government came in and rounded up various groups of indigenous people and put them in internment camps. And that happened here for the Diné or the Navajo in, uh, I think it was 1860. And uh, so they were in a very confined area because their landmass before going um, was found within four sacred mountains, but it covered, I don't know, maybe, I don't know how many square miles, but uh, so when they came back, their land space was much reduced. And now they're at 27,500 square miles in size, right? So the people who are here are primarily Navajo or Diné people. The Hopi reservation is found within the uh, Navajo Nation. Yeah, so since uh, 1987, I've been living and working here as a primary care physician in the Indian Health Service. Uh, so that's how I came here and uh, chose to chose to stay. I actually had a four-year obligation. The U.S. government paid for my, my medical school education, and I had to work in a health shortage area for four years, so I chose to come here and I haven't left. <laughs> and where did you where did you come from? Like where did you grow up? I'm originally from the southern part of the United States. I'm from Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, and I went to med school in Nashville, Tennessee. Then I started my family practice residency in West Virginia and finished it in Toledo, Ohio. And I finished in eighty seven and drove across country and yeah, I've been here since then. I think Doug and I and I don't mean to to go U U.S. centric on this particular question, but Chip, I was curious when when, when Doug mentioned uh, wanting to talk to you, I, and I thought it was fascinating. Growing up in America in the American education system, obviously there are certain parts that are left out, um, certain parts that are glossed over. Um, what was your particular knowledge growing up in North Carolina about how? Indian reservations worked, what they meant, and perhaps like what the function of them were. Like, cause I didn't, I don't, even when Doug was talking to me before, I felt like I had to kind of really comb through some of my lack of education to explain what a reservation was. But can you, how was your education about it before you went there? You know, my, my education is, was different from your education because I'm a generation at least older and um, I grew up with black and white TV, you know, seeing Westerns on Saturday morning, um, shot in places like Monument Valley. <laughs> yeah. And I remember as a kid, you know, I, I'm an only child, but, but I would still dress up like I was the native person in the movie and run around with a bow and arrow. And uh, so my, I, and the other thing about my childhood being in North Carolina in the Western part of the state, um, there is a Cherokee reservation. But as a kid, you know, we would go to this place called Cherokee and they would do like a shootout where the native people would come into the fortress area. And um, so that was a big tourist draw. We would ride the, um, the chairlift to the top of one of the mountains there in the Smokies. But my impression was, it, it was fascinating because all the, a lot of the Cherokee people just looked white to me. I didn't appreciate their uniqueness in terms of everything I was seeing was the stereotypical image that was presented on, you know, like the Saturday morning shows. 
Um, it, it wasn't an, an authentic representation of that community. <laughs> but that was the impression that I had of Native people as a kid. So when I came to the Southwest, you know, it was amazing because, you know, the people have darker skin. The people have black hair. <laughs> and uh, you can tell that the gene pool is a little bit more intact. Not intact, but just um, not, not as dilute. Um, as with the, the Cherokees, you know, the, in order to be considered Diné or Navajo here, people have to be 25%, I think, by blood quantum, whereas with the Cherokee, it's 116th. I am a 16th Lumbee, which is the tribe that comes from the coast of North Carolina. Um, so it's not a federally recognized. Do you actually have a genetic connection to, the, to this? Yeah, yeah, but uh, I mean, you know, it's not necessarily anything I... Um, I don't know. I mean, maybe that's what led me to stay here for 33 years. You know, I didn't plan on staying this long, but clearly there's some connection. What was it then that, you know, out of the pool of places that you could choose to go and do your four years uh, working in a particular community, what was it that pulled you here? That's a good question. That's a very good question. Thank you for asking that because um, a dear, dear friend of mine, um, named Peggy Crawley, who is now in Oakland, but she and her husband had just finished their residency at the University of California, San Francisco. In 1986, they came to this community and started doing their four-year payback to the National Service Corps. So I, was, I had to start my payback in 87. So Peggy said to her husband, you know, I think this place would really resonate with this chip. <laughs> Um, and clearly it has. So she's someone who uh, knows me really well, but she invited me out and to interview. And I worked with she and her husband for like five years, but it was just, you know, once I was here, it's something just clicked, you know, it just, it's, I, I live between Monument Valley, where a lot of those movies were shot that I was referencing that I saw as a kid on Saturday morning, the John Ford movies. And so that's 75 miles to the uh, east, and then uh, 120 miles to the west is the Grand Canyon. Um, and there's also some natural parks around me. So it's just, you know, and I enjoy being outdoors. Um, I enjoy the open space and uh, yeah, just it, it's an expansive kind of place to be. So I, it just resonated, and I... Um, yeah, chose to stay. And and what what goes into that decision to stay? Once you're done with the the four years that you had that, that you were giving back, was there like an opportunity to leave and you just said no? Or what, what, did you when did you kind of realize oh, yeah. this is the place I wanted to stay? <laughs> yeah. So okay. So an amazing <laughs> some of the most amazing things in my life have happened in here in what many would call the middle of nowhere. But um, so I. Uh, had thought I would stay for two years. Like when I first came, my next door neighbor was a guy who was into uh, experimental film, uh, ind independent film, um, uh, new age uh, music. So we just connected. When he, he, he was here for 18 months, he left. Uh, his name is Ms. Ken Ogawa. He gave me his darkroom set up. And, uh, but there was, so I was just having an opportunity to meet fascinating people, to work in a fascinating community, and to explore some things that I'd always been curious about. I wanted to learn how to work in a darkroom. So I, I essentially taught myself that, you know, in my first couple years here. 
And then for the next 22 years, nonstop, I was going out into the community, spending time with people, and to the extent they were comfortable trying to, you know, document what I was seeing in a style that was similar to what I saw in Life Magazine as a kid, right? So it's just, I, it's been an opportunity to feel like I'm doing good work in the community while satisfying my need for, um, I don't know, for creativity, for attempting to build community. I had a four-year obligation, and I thought, okay, I really like it here, but I want to take off some time to do a cycle tour in East Africa, climb Mount Kilimanjaro, and work at a clinic in East Africa, right? So that was what I was looking at doing in 1993, 92, 93. My obligation finished in 1991, uh, and in the spring of 92, just randomly, someone got in touch with me and said, hey, I'm doing a bicycle trip, organizing a bike trip from the top of Africa, 12,000 miles to the bottom. We're looking for a black doctor. And it was at that point I realized I could stay here and do good work as well as take a sabbatical, take an extended leave, you know, like every five years. So I've been doing that ever since um, the bike trip in wow. 2000, in 1992. Oh, really? Yeah. So in fact, yeah, so I just, so that's how I started doing street art, man. I was in Brazil for three months in 2009. And the last part of that trip, I, um, uh, for three weeks every day was with artists from different parts of the world who would gather in a Brazilian artist studio and they would strategize, you know, pe uh, organize pieces together to do on the street. But as much as anything, it was the sense of community that they built and they were like willing to welcome me into for the three weeks I was there that really moved me. And, and at this point, really at this point, you were you were just doing photos. Is that correct? Well, yeah. So, but it was crazy because you know, um, at this point, yeah, I was going out into the community, shooting black and white in a documentary style. I would have shows in galleries at different you know different spots around the country. Nothing really major, but um, it was it just it. It was not at all connected to the community, you know. It was like it was yeah, yeah, yeah. The frequently people who who were pictured never saw the shows. You know, they would get their individual pictures. But I started my family practice residency in West Virginia in 1983, and it was that coincided with the first coming of uh, hip hop. And you know, we didn't again didn't have the internet to to see what was happening, but the word was still getting out, you know, in various magazines. And uh, with the movie, you know, Beat Street, the movies Beat Street and Breaking. So as often as possible in the 80s, I would go to New York, which wasn't that far away, looking for painted trains and people breakdancing. And yeah, I would spend time at Keith Herring's pop shop. As a photographer and fan, or were you Yes, I was a total fanboy. I was so when I moved to West Virginia in 83, 84, I met this um, young, skinny white dude who was nothing but heart and soul and just a badass drummer. We were just seriously into hip hop and Africa, Bambada, and the Zulu Nation. So we. <laughs> this is amazing, by the way, that this is happening in West Virginia. Right? Dude, I'm telling you, yeah. there, there is consciousness everywhere, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's a, that's a beautiful thing about music and art. It can resonate with people regardless of where you are. 
Right. But we we made T-shirts that were red, you know, green and gold, and it said Zulu Nation. And we thought if we wore them <laughs> in New York, we would, you know, find other members of the Zulu Nation. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so <laughs> it, it never happened. We just look like dorks. But. <laughs> um, <laughs> I like that you're prepared to admit that, though. Yeah, but I'm just saying, you know, the passion has always been there. You know, it's like I have always been visually drawn, drawn to graffiti and art in the streets. So, and anytime I would travel to Europe in the 90s or 2000s, I would notice, you know, trains or buildings, walls. And then in South America, it was just off the hook. You know, Brazil is insane in terms of the amount of art there and the quality of the art. Just to kind of like stay in that, that area, can you maybe just explain a little bit about what the landscape of West Virginia would be like? I mean, I know the landscape of New York in the 1980s, that story's quite quite often told, and especially in this podcast. What would West Virginia have been like at this time? So do you know anything about West Virginia now? Like, are there any images that come to mind when I say West West Virginia? To me, I think of Appalachian Trail, Appalachian Mountains, and I think of kind of poverty, to be honest. Yeah, boom. So um, <laughs> I, I, I chuckle, but I mean, it's uh, it's the history of West Virginia is um, in coal mining. And it's not the open pit coal mining, but, you know, going into like, you know, they're doing in Britain. <laughs> there are communities. It's a, So the history of West Virginia is fascinating because you have a lot of poor whites, but yet there's a radical history of unions working in the mine and oppressing oh. the uh, big bosses. So there's that, there's, a, there's that element, but it's not as prominent as kind of the good old boy, what's called hillbilly culture that is prevalent in these isolated communities called hollers, which are in little valleys up in the mountains where family groups would, would live. And they, you know, frequently they were like mining towns where people, you know, were working for the mine. And they would be in this community with their families and the men would be away in the mine. It's economically now, especially as, you know, coal is going down and has been going down, uh, for a while, uh, there are a lot of poor people, poor whites in West Virginia. And it's been this way for a while, actually. But um, so consequently, there's an issue with racism in West Virginia. I'll tell you about an experience that I had. But what's happening there now is it became the opiate capital of, I forget which town, I think it was Huntington, which is where I was doing my family practice residency. Um, but now, you know, there were more opiate deaths per 100,000 per 1,000 than any other community in the United States. And just, you know, the influx of prescription drugs into that community was an example of capitalism gone amok. Amok. It was just crazy. It was like um, on a daily basis, every citizen in this town could have consumed like 40 uh, opiates, I think. And so it was just <laughs> more needed to uh, be there. So um, West Virginia presently is coming back. Uh, or is, So the coal industry fell out and uh, many communities in West Virginia were flooded with opiates. So there's 
it's it's an oppressed um, place. I don't know what the primary in, industry is there now. But yeah, so when I was there in the 80s, I had just started my family practice residency. And I used to like to uh, cycle. In fact, I still cycle. Yeah, I mean, I, um, but I would cycle out into a pretty rural community. And um, it was, you know, an all white rural community. And I had an experience that was, you know, shook me to my core. In fact, that's what got me out of West Virginia. That's when I transferred to Northern, Northern Ohio, but on an isolated stretch of road uh, that was maybe a couple kilometers long, uh, a, a vehicle, a car with four white dudes in it came by and tried to spit on me, run me off the road. They were calling me names, but then they passed me. They would turn around and come back and do the same thing. This went on like four times. And I was able to get to a point where um, I was amongst houses again, and I felt safer, and I was able to get home okay. But yeah, that's what it was like. I can't <laughs> be in a place like this, and that's when I moved to Northern Ohio. But the experience of Ahmad, um, well, I can't think of his Aubrey. last name. Aubrey, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, seeing the video of him getting shot down as he was out exercising, running through a white community. I mean, <laughs> as you were telling that story, there was I was thinking, like, yeah, uh, in this experience, yeah. you know, unfortunately, yours was didn't end the way that his did. Right. You know, seeing him get shot down, it was like, damn, that could have been me. And, you know, just, but sadly it was him. And I, it. <laughs> so where was your, your interest, your first ever interest that you can remember with something that was, you know, art, you know, was it seeing the, what was going on in the eighties in New York, or was there something before that? When I was 12, the public school system in North Carolina, actually when I was 11, 1968, you can do the math. <laughs> <laughs> um, the public school system in North Carolina was desegregated and now kids from like the black neighborhood were being bused to the white schools and some of the white kids were being bu bused to the black schools and there was a lot of violence in the school system. So my parents didn't want me in that environment and I had an opportunity to go away for three years to an alternative Quaker school but there were 24 kids. Uh, there wow. were three black kids and wow. others. It's called the Arthur Morgan School. It still exists. And it's up in the mountains of North Carolina at the base of the Black Mountains. Mount Mitchell is the tallest mountain east of the Mississippi. We would climb it frequently. I, we would do outward bound stuff where I learned to climb and to repel. There was horseback riding. Okay. There, we, 1969, we had an, an organic garden. We were we were harvesting honey. <laughs> Chip, would this have been close to the Black Mountain College? Was that going on at this? I guess that might have been over. Black, yeah. So that was in Asheville, and Asheville is about an hour and a half away. Okay. So yeah, but it's okay. the same Black Mountains. Yeah, and yeah, there were people at the Quaker School who were certainly aware of what was happening at the um, at, at Black Mountain College. Yeah, that's a phenomenal okay. place. Yeah, yeah. That was that it was that same kind of communal um, energy that was at Black Mountain, where you know art was just a very it was very much a part of everyday life, and people made decisions by consensus and lived together collectively. 
yeah, it was in that experience that I, when I was 12, I went into a dark room for the first time. And then I got a, my, my parents were kind enough to buy me a camera and I started shooting black and white film. But, you know, as often as not, my, my camera was in an automatic mode setting. <laughs> so, like I said, when I came here, it was an opportunity with it was an opportunity to woodshed and take some time to figure out, you know, how to really do this. Yeah. So my first experience with art was in seventh grade. And was that always just going to be like a hobby while you went to focus Medical on your school. main yeah. your main career, which was to be a, a doctor? When I was in med school, I actually didn't do much of anything <laughs> besides med school. <laughs> uh, my, okay. pa <laughs> my passion was was running. So I, um, yeah, but, you know, uh, run distant races and study. But um, yeah, then when I finished med school in 83 in Nashville, Tennessee at Meharry Medical College, a predominantly African-American historical black university um, in Nashville. When I started my residency in West Virginia in 83, <laughs> my relationship with marijuana was renewed. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like how you stopped and paused before you started that. Yeah, I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. What's 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 the best way to say this? Um, yeah. And uh, you know, yeah. So hip hop was happening. It was it was dynamic. I was like, you know, twenty two, man. It was like, damn, this is new. This is different. This is wild. It just really spoke to me. And uh, yeah, yeah, I'm I. Used to love going to New York back in the eighties and nineties. Were you quite like a, a studious person before that point, and did it start to sort of maybe go in a slightly different direction? No, no, not at all. I tell you the truth. <laughs> School has always been a struggle for me. I, I have never been a good student, and I don't test well. Um, and I think my heart, my passion, really probably you know has always been in in the arts, but I um, had a fair amount of pressure from my parents to um, do something else. Were your parents in medical profession? Yeah, so my, my mom was a school teacher, public school teacher. She taught for 39 years, so my dad was a uh, doctor. There we go. And you're the, the golden child. The only, the only child, yeah. A, a bona fide member of the black bourgeoisie, yeah. So then you find yourself in in a completely different place. Did you feel similarities when you got to the Navajo Nation of anything that was there in West Virginia? No, no. So no. So so I I'm going to answer this a little bit differently. I think I, I should have given you a chance to fin actually go ahead and finish your question. Sorry, that was kind of at the end. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, so. The thing changed my world was going to this Quaker school. Sorry, can you help help me out? What what is a Quaker school? Right. Okay. So the Quakers um, are a religious, uh, a Christian religious organization who followed the St. James Bible, similar to the Amish, but they also migrated from, you know, from England uh, in the 1700s, I think. The philosophy is to live simply so that others may simply live. They're not as um, orthodox as the Amish. Oh, so there's got to be similarities between those two then. 
Yeah, there's similarities, but you know the uh, Quakers don't drive around in buggies and. Sorry, I made between I made between the Quakers and the Navajo. Uh, the Navajo. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I forgot where I was going with all that and what the original question was. Sorry, I threw it off again. Wait, what I'm what I'm curious about is that you have found yourself in certain communities, rural communities, while being influenced by some things that were happening in like urban centers. But at some point when you're on the Navajo reservation, you're on your way back, you've done the bike ride, all of a sudden you're going to be a doctor there, you're going to document people, you're taking photos, you're really showing a lot of care. Like, were, were people suspicious of why you were so caring? Like, was there any sort of thing like, what's this guy really doing? Like, or was it always just open arms and everyone was cool with it? Yeah. Well, no, hell no. Well, so that was a fascinating thing <laughs> because in 1986, I went to a political rally in Philadelphia in 1986. The thing that was happening on college campuses where students were building shanty towns to um, represent the way people were living in the communities and around the big cities in South Africa. And okay. the thing that was happening during apartheid in 86 was the South African government was like coming in with bulldozers and just bold because these were just plywood structures, you know, they were being bulldozed and people were being sent back to their homelands. Right. But a lot of the people who were living in the squatter communities worked in the service industry within the bigger cities you know, of Cape Town and Joe right. Johannesburg. But the big movement in college campuses was um, about being apartheid. That was during the time of the anti-apartheid movement. I went to a political rally where there were people from an area on the reservation here called Big Mountain. Um, and they were Navajo, Diné, grandmas and grandpas, but mainly older women who were, you know, wearing long skirts and velveteen blouses and whose hair was covered by a scarf. And they were wearing turquoise jewelry and these beautiful, like, winter coats made of wool, but in the form of a traditional blanket and uh, who didn't speak any English. So everything they said, you know, had to be translated at this rally. But they were talking about how uh, they had lived in an area of the reservation. Their ancestors had been there for hundreds of years. They had lived peaceably peaceably with the Hopi, who were their neighbors, their next door neighbors. I said the Hopi reservation is right in the middle of the Navajo Nation. But there were Navajo people living on what was considered Hopi land. And the problem was there was a coal deposit under this land that the Peabody Coal Company, um, a big conglomerate, part of which is in London. So the, the coal company wanted to get to that deposit of coal. The Hopi tribe, I think, wanted the money that would have come from mining that. So Navajo people were being forcibly removed from their land by the Hopi rangers. And they were saying how it was like what was happening in South Africa. So I thought, this is amazing. I'm going to get to come work in this area where people have this type of consciousness <laughs> and political awareness and sense of solidarity. And when I came in 1987, July of 1987, what I found was like, by and large, so, okay, let me back up and say, natural resources on the reservation include coal, oil, natural gas, uranium, and water and 
and aquifers. And this is in a land space that's larger than the state of West Virginia, 27,000 miles square, square miles in size. It's quite massive. It's home to only 180,000 people, right? So it's not densely populated, not a lot of big cities here, a few small towns scattered around, but by and large, people, you know, just live scattered around um, the reservation. But with those resources, you would think that people here would be materially wealthy. But because of the way the contracts were written for those resources, the tribe at one point was receiving only 10% of the royalties. And this was till, until maybe 15 years ago. So there's still a lot of roads out here that are dirt roads, and it snows and it rains, and those roads become impassable. 20 to 30% of my patients still don't have running water or electricity. The electricity that was being generated, there's a generating station that just shut down that ran for like 30 years, but it was 50 miles away from me in Page. Um, but that electricity was going to LA, it was going to Denver, Phoenix, Albuquerque, but very little of that was coming onto the reservation. So even though the resources are here, 20 to 30% of people still don't have running water or electricity as I speak. And it's gotten better over the 33 years I've been here. But yeah, so that's the place where we are. That was going to be my next question. You, has it got better? And what have been some of the big changes that you have seen since you first arrived there 30 years ago? Yeah, there's a big solar energy project. And I forget what percent that project is contributing to power on the res. So there are more and more people coming online. So that's a wonderful thing. Water is Access to water is still an issue because you have to do an archaeological dig first to see what ruins may be um, on, the, on the property. And it's really expensive to get all that done. But you would think with the resources that the tribe has, they would be able to pay to get the, you know, the, the clearance to get the water lines in. But yeah, the infrastructure has improved in terms of roads. With regard to health stats, I don't know if you know what's happening as we speak, but the Navajo Nation is being ravaged by coronavirus. We are um, a pandemic hotspot. Part of the reason for that is, you know, as I just said, if people are still having to haul water, um, 30% of the population or more, uh, you know, there's not going to be as stringent hand washing happening in those households uh, as maybe should be. Many of the households are multi-generational. So, you know, you'll have many families living under one roof. So social isolation is hard within the home. So yeah, as we speak, that uh, infection is really doing, is doing a number on the reservation. A couple of weeks ago, we had the third highest uh, rate of infection right behind per 100,000 people behind New York and New Jersey. I think we've moved down to five now, to number five. But yeah, so over the years that I've been here, I've seen, unfortunately, people become less healthy. You know, people become, uh, the population in general, unfortunately, become more obese and less active. With that comes the, you know, diabetes, hypertension, heart disease. There's a problem with in environmental pollution, like the UN, there's over 500 abandoned uranium mines here that haven't been kept, that haven't been sealed from the uh, Cold War. Yeah, when uh, the reservation, uh, the Southwest in general, is largely responsible for building the U.S. nuclear arsenal during the uh, Cold War. But 
they were the mining companies were operating under outdated mining laws from the 1800s so they 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 didn't have to be responsible for cleaning up after themselves when they when they left so as a consequence there's respiratory problems and uh various cancers are higher here than in other parts of the the country as a physician how has your experience been since the start of this pandemic the pandemic uh, started to blow up. It, it was interesting because I was saying I, you know, do a sabbatical every five years. So I was actually in Brazil until March 20th. When I came back, it, it was amazing because like two days before I flew into Chicago from uh, Sao Paulo, two days before in the Chicago airport, that was when the U.S. government started to do its so- social isolation program. So the lines, you know, going through immigration at the airport, people were waiting like seven hours, which was just creating this hotbed for the virus to spread. <laughs> so I was really fortunate because two two days after uh, that, the airports were essentially empty. So coming back into the country really wasn't um, as problematic as I feared. But um, the reservation at that time, I was afraid that I would somehow bring the infection to the reservation. So I was in quarantine for 14 days when I landed. Apparently, there had been, on the weekend of March 8th, a large church revival here on the reservation that people traveled from far around to attend. And story goes that one of the ministers attending that, you know, had been sick and was coughing throughout the event. And within um, a few days, several people started presenting with this respiratory illness. And that's just 70 miles away from me. So that was um, that community was considered a hot spot. So my particular day at my clinic actually hasn't been as intense, hasn't been as bad. There are patients who come to the clinic who are diagnosed um, with having coronavirus. And fortunately, most of them have been stable, but we still you know, have to make admissions to some of the bigger hospitals around to get patients treated. On the reservation, I, mean, I know we're, we, we've kind of diverted away from art a little bit, but is there a bit of a, um, I don't want to say like distrust, but is there amongst the reservation in Navajo where they're like, you know what, the U.S. government is saying we need to shelter in place? Like, do we need to do that? Yeah. Well, yes and no. I mean, uh, okay. and that reminded me of a question I was answering. Um, <laughs> but I, <laughs> the reason I say that is because there, there are people on the reservation who, you know, have a suspicion of the U.S. government. But, you know, in terms of uh, a, a large number of men, actually and women too, from the reservation, joined the U.S. military and are quite patriotic and don't necessarily have a suspicion that one might assume um, of the U.S. government. But there was a question asked earlier about me being accepted. And um, there's actually an expression within the culture that unless you've been around for two years, so people can see how you are, they don't really take you into their trust. So, you know, um, it really took me time of just being here and making mistakes. But, you know, over time, over the years, uh, the community, I think, has come to appreciate my continuity and has come to trust me. And uh, But it, it, it didn't come immediately. It took time. So that's the thing that's crazy about this art project is because 
you know, it's giving me an opportunity to go back out and spend time with people whom I've known for a while, many of whom are my patients, um, as I'm photographing them, and then putting that work up in the community that I think reflects some of the beauty and strength of the community back to the people. It's, um, I talk about this as being like in, when I see patients in the clinic, I'm trying to create an environment of wellness within the individual. So he or she can realize their aspirations and so on. And in order to really appreciate this, you know, we talked about the material wealth on the reservation, but, you know, the downside with um, the lack of material support that people have and the lack of jobs um, available on the reservation is, and uh, it's been re referred to as an intergenerational trauma effect where one's self-esteem isn't as high um, had one's ancestors and oneself not experienced various forms of oppression and abuse um, as has happened with Native people. So um, rates of, you know, various chronic illnesses is high, but there's also, you know, a, a part of the community that has an issue with substance abuse. Um, meth use, unfortunately, has become an issue in the, this remote community where I am. And um, uh, teen suicide on the reservation is two to three times the national average, which again gets back to this. Uh, lack of self-esteem or decreased self-esteem. It's within that environment that I am taking pictures and reflecting to people the beauty they've been kind enough to share with me over the years that I've been here. And it's become, you know, and in that sense, I'm trying to create an environment of wellness within the community that's a complement to my medical practice. But it also affords me a a deeper connection and a deeper relationship, a deeper conversation with the community um, now that they know I'm the one doing this art. When I first started doing the art, it was problematic because there's not a, there's not a tradition of muralism really on this part of the reservation. Again, the reservation is quite big and there's a fraught history of photography with native cultures, with native communities yeah. around the world and how native communities are often fetishized by photographers, you know, and or they create static images of um, native people um, as opposed to showing how things really are. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, coming from that Life magazine documentary, um, humanist photography type of background that you know i was so moved by with you know the images of people like eugene smith um i uh yeah you know when i saw the example of jr's work in brazil and from 2008 when he did the uh, women are heroes piece that for me was like oh shit that's the missing link that's what's up because here is photography black and white you know nicely done which i've had a passion for and have been working in my had been working in my dark room at that point for 20 years and it was you know my meeting my passion for street art you know those years having gone to new york in the 80s and it was like i've got to figure out <laughs> how that happens and that's what started the uh, journey for me you're obviously you know dealing with a sensitive community uh and there's such a fine line 
and how you engage with this practice. What is it that you are looking for? How are you wanting to portray people? What are these scenarios that you're looking for? Because there's got to be a decision that's being made for there. There's got to be photos that you're just like, you might love it, but there's no way that you're going to put that up on a on the side of a structure. Yeah. How are you making these internal decisions? Well, you know, and it's 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 been a process of trial and error. I mean, as someone from outside the community, I have made some mistakes. I have made errors. You know, I've talked a little bit about grace and and for forgiveness before. But so it helps, you know, in coming into a new place to know what influences people's thinking. And one spiritual practice can have a profound influence on the way you process the world. And on the reservation, there are three predominant religions. There's Christianity, there's the Native American church, and the people who practice this. This is a pan-Native, pan-Indian spiritual practice that happens in a teepee where people go in in the evening and ingest peyote um, under the guidance of a spiritual leader called a uh, roadman and um, in a community of people sitting in a circle around a fire over the course of a night, um, people come together you know it's um, a talking circle under the influence of this psychoactive uh, medicine um, so there's that community which has its own set of values and mores and then there's the trip traditional Navajo people um, whose guiding principle is to walk in beauty and to stay in balance. And um, they have their own set of practices and beliefs, but it influences the way someone might see a photograph along the side of the road. For example, a traditional Navajo, um, upon seeing a photograph of someone who has passed away, is deeply offended. You know, for a traditional person, you've got four days to grieve someone's death. And after that, you never say that person's name. You don't wow. reference them. You don't see pictures wow. of them. Yeah, I, I learned this. And it, it was I All get right. the consent of the people I'm working with before putting the, the photos up. But if I get the consent of one family member, that doesn't mean that, <laughs> you know, then that one family member may be Native American church member and somebody else in the family may be Christian. And uh, yeah, so I had to learn what types of images were safe to put up. You know, so for example, there's the tradition on the reservation of the code talkers. I don't know if you know who the code talkers were. They were from various, actually, native nations. I think some were um, Lakota, some were Diné, uh, Navajo, uh, but they were soldiers uh, and other tribes as well. I don't know all the tribes, but during World War II, they would speak in code in their native languages um, when they were fighting in the Pacific theater. And this was the only code that wasn't broken by the Japanese. So the code talkers are considered, you know, heroes for their unique contribution to the World War II effort. Anytime, so I actually have a photo of some older code talkers taking part in a recognition in a community close to me. So anytime I put up pictures of code talkers, people love that. Uh, people here are deeply connected to their sheep. <laughs> <laughs> you said sheep? Sheep, yeah. The women here, you know, they will uh, shear the sheep, do all the carding and, you know, make beautiful wool and then make these incredible tapestries or rugs. And people butcher the sheep. And so in every 
part of the sheep is used. And once wealth in the 1800s and 1900s on the reservation on the Navajo Nation here was determined by the size of your sheep flock. You know, the size, how many cattle you you had. So people have had a long history um, that that was introduced to them, I think, by the Spanish in the 1600s, maybe earlier. But anyway, um, so pictures of sheep are really, especially if I if I have a picture of a grandma holding a lamb. I mean, that's that's gold dust. Yeah. But I mean, so and that's the type of stuff I started with. And since then, now that people, you know, have an idea of who's doing this and why and where it's coming from, I've been doing it now for 11 years. I have a bit more liberty with what I can put up. But there was an example of a developer from Scottsdale, from a rich community in the southern part of Arizona, who wanted to build a resort in the Grand Canyon, which and the part of the Grand Canyon that was on Navajo land. And there were traditional people, you know, because it's a holy spot and a spot where the um, the Hopi people and some of the other, I forget what that, what type of tribe they are, but um, it's the place of emergence where they are said from which to emerge in the Grand Canyon. And a developer wanted to build on that site. So it created friction on the reservation because the unemployment rate here is over 50%, um, and there would have been jobs created for that community, money going to the tribe, but the more traditional people, both um, Navajo and from other um, area tribes, was no, we don't want that to happen. So I put up posters opposing this development. That became a source of friction within the communities where I was putting this up, because there were people who wanted those jobs, who didn't care that it was a traditional space, you know. So the word can sometimes be controversial on the reservation, but primarily it's a, a conversation that I'm having with the community. Like I said, by and large, it's me reflecting back to them the beautiful things I've seen and gotten from them in the years I've been here. What about when you bring other artists in to work on the reservation, is there a learning curve as well? So that's a tricky thing because, you know, I um, so I started doing that in 2012. That's the Painted Desert Project. And I really wanted to maintain the energy that I felt from the community of artists in Brazil. So yeah, I tried to set up, or I set up a small residency. And so some of the first artists I invited out, you know, have a background in social practice, mural muralism, I don't know, street art. Say there were people like Gaia over under Lebrona from Canada and some local artists as well. Tom Gray Eyes, Breeze from Phoenix. Um, but there were like seven people who came out in the first group in 2012. And before they came out, I sent to, to them like some books to read. I sent to them the movie Broken Rainbow about the land struggle on Big Mountain between the Hopi and the Navajo or the coal deposits and wanted them to come out informed. But then when they came out, I paired them with families or with people who could share, you know, more personal stories. And then the art was to be generated kind of from that point. And, you know, I, I've had a lot of different people come out over the years. Not everyone gets to stay for two weeks and invest as much or not as many people will invest, you know, in learning about where they're coming before they come. But, yeah, so it, the results of that have been variable. But it's, you know, that that project is also a training opportunity 
for local youth. Um, I will have artists come and like go into schools and do workshops on stenciling um, and mural making. I had a Denae Navajo poet come for a week to spend time doing art in a local school. And um, there are some artists from the community who will work with some people who come out. Like, I don't know if you know Esteban de Valle, who's based in Chicago now, or Dave Young Kim, who's now in L.A., Mopi. There's an artist from the community who's quite a talented muralist who got to assist each of those people when they came out. So it's really helped his his muralism skills. And as much as anything, the Paint the Desert Project really is to have that type of meaningful connection. Is the Painted Desert Project still ongoing? Yeah, yeah. In fact, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. I think part of the reason we're together on this call is because I was in the process of working to get Axel Boyd and a bunch of artists um, in Boyd projects out to the Hopi Reservation. Um, they were going to come out in May. I was actually supposed to be on that on that convoy, uh, but it obviously got shut down. So I was just, I was wondering if that was still part of the Painted Desert Project. That was destined to, that is destined to be the most ambitious Painted Desert Project yet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the Void Project's family are all very excited for it. The WhatsApp lit up. <laughs> yeah, it's been exciting planning that. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that happening. With regards to the local community then, is there, you know, you talk about large unemployment, you talk about like, you know, it obviously sounds like there's there's a lot of internal problems there. Um, is what, how, let me try, rephrase that. <laughs> how are the arts viewed? There are artists here. There are, you know, Navajo artists who, but most of them have gone to, well, many of them, have gone to the Institute for American Indian Art. It's IAIA um, in Santa Fe. And many of the recognized artists are not living on the reservation and or they split time between the reservation and some of the bigger cities around like LA, San Francisco. I don't know if you know the name Tony Abeta. Yeah. I think it's done in the Chinle area. There's a muralist named Chantal Begay who actually... Uh, trained or worked with Cy Wagner. I don't know if you know Cy, who's there in San Francisco. You all know Cy because do you do you know the intervention that was done on Mount Rushmore shortly after Obama became president, where the um, Greenpeace activists dropped a banner oh, yeah, over yeah. the faces of the president? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So Cy was one of those activists who scaled down the face of Rushmore. <laughs> Oh, okay. uh, but he's a Navajo guy from a community here on the res. He was also one of the people who, after Trump was um, inaugurated, <laughs> they hung a banner off of scaffolding, off of a big boom in back of the White House that said resist. Oh, oh. yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Of course I remember that. That was mad. Was that with Greenpeace? Yeah. So that was that was Sai also. He was involved in that intervention. So yeah, so he's an artist from the res, but like I said, he's presently living in San Francisco. A lot of the places where I put my photographs are on what I call these roadside stands where you know people build these little stalls of wood or and a lot of the wood is scrap and um, they will have you know jewelry that's silver jewelry with turquoise and rugs and paintings that they sell 
So the two tourists, because I, again, I live between Monument Valley and the Grand Canyon and close to Lake Powell. So there's a lot of tourist traffic on the small roads here. But yeah, it's really hard, I think, to um, make a living on the reservation itself. When you're around maybe the youth on the reservation and they are interested in the arts, is there at all a pressure to perhaps follow more like craft and traditional arts as opposed to trying to do like the kind of contemporary art track? Like, is there a little bit of a conversation there? I can only reflect um, on what I've seen. And I don't know what the conversations are within the communities and schools or families of the youth who are getting out is a very active underground graffiti scene in various communities around the rest. There's some super talented, super talented (laughs) writers and painters. So uh, there's a serious punk community, kind of an indigenous punk movement happening on the res, um, the anarchist indigenous punk movement. Um, So there's info shops with interesting art in them that's more um, like screen prints and block prints. But there's not a lot of their work appearing as murals or paste-ups or anything. But yeah, I mean, I actually have done and have plans to do projects with some of those groups. And like I said, I brought uh, Kate D. D. Cco, um, a social justice artist based in Oakland, out to the reservation three times to do workshops with various youth. Yeah. Feel free not to answer this, Chip. I'm going to ask it and you can can feel free to to sit it out. Do you think you'd have been able to set up shop where you are for 30 years if you weren't black? If you were a white guy, would you have been able to do that? Well, so let me say this. I have found that, um, you know, all groups of people have a preference for their this is a general this is a broad statement but i mean you know i think there's a natural bias for many native people to be with other native people and i have experienced you know racism here from native people on the reservation i have a son who's biracial he's uh part navajo part african-american and you know he certainly experienced it um so i don't think being um, a person of color, you know, African-American coming from a background that has a history of oppression, I thought that would be something that could connect me to people here pretty quickly. You know, like I said, having gone to that rally in Philadelphia where they were talking about their situation being similar to what was happening in the squatter communities in South Africa, I, I thought I would be accepted, you know, quickly and immediately. But in general, like I said, there's a thing within the community that unless you've been around for two years, you know, and uh, you show that your actions are consistent with your words, that the older people anyway don't necessarily take you into their trust. And I don't think, I think that's probably true regardless of your race, you know? So I think, yeah, um, my being black, I don't think necessarily helped me. Okay be accepted by people here i was just curious because because in the uk we don't really have something that could be would be comparable i think maybe if i was in australia i think they have a really indigenous population there that are marginalized and 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 there would be potentially a comparison there but in the uk i have no point of of real understanding or, or or experience from a first-hand perspective of how that 
probably works. I'm trying to just look at it from as many different angles as I can. No, well, I'm just, no, no, that was, no, and, I, and I'm just, I'm just curious. Like, I, I still go back to that. Like, when, when you, when all of a sudden you start doing the art, and the, if some of the elders were just like, "Wait, now he's doing artwork? Like, what is going on?" Like, <laughs> I'm just wondering if there's, if there was ever just this thing where they're like, "What are you actually doing here?" Yeah, like, can you just take my blood pressure? Right. No. So that's a that's a good question. And the way I see it, the way I perceive it is, I did it for a while without people knowing who was doing it, and everyone assumed okay. it was a young. Danae, um art student, you know, based in Phoenix, who was coming up on weekends and, you know, getting this uh, work up. Because what people noticed about it was that the work seemed to be informed. It seemed to be the work of an insider, you know, um, yeah. that was something that felt familiar about it. So people were, were curious about, you know, it, it's like they, the street street art, muralism, photos pasted onto buildings was new to them. And, you know, it's not okay to have pictures of dead people up, but the pictures, some of the pictures really spoke to them and they felt they were coming from a good place ultimately. And then once they realized, wait a minute, the guy doing it is my doctor. I I think it, you know, (laughs) I, I think they sense that the pictures are coming from a place of love and a place of respect. And then I'm hoping they make the association that my medical practice and the way I interact with them is coming from a place of love and respect. And I think, yeah, so I think people now totally dig it and like the fact that, yeah, my doctor did this. I mean, I I get those comments on on Facebook. (laughs) That's amazing. Well, and Chip, not to sound like hippy-dippy here. I mean, I'm from San Francisco, so it comes out. Hippy-dippy. But like, do you draw a connection between people's physical and mental well-being with the fact that create creativity is happening like i know that sounds so like wishy-washy but i believe it's true dude dude yeah hell yeah i mean part of the reason i even do what i do in terms of putting these pictures up is because i mean okay i was talking about you know the intensity of being here now during the coronavirus epidemic and the stress that comes with that and there are people in the community dying you know, one of my co-workers, a woman in her 40s, died from co- coronavirus a couple of weeks ago. So for me, just to get out, to be outdoors in this beautiful light over the course of a day with this expansive sky um, and to create something that I think brings a good feeling into the community makes me feel really good. Yeah. <laughs> so... Right. It, it puts me in a better space, you know, and I think that people pick up on that and they feel some of that energy as well. And like I said, yeah, I my it's intentional what I'm doing in the community because I'm trying to create a good vibe, a good feeling, a community of wellness, you know, a feeling of wellness within the community. So, yeah. That's I'm I'm all about it with the uh, hippies in San Francisco. Hey man, you did you, you did go to a Quaker school, so it makes sense. You know? Right. So yeah. and at this it Quaker all, school, there was a commune from Detroit, Michigan, who moved into the community around us, and they were just full on hippies. But many of them had gone to Woodstock that summer of '69 and came in. T- so here I was. T- 12 years old. I was in a rock band. I was the drummer for a rock band. We we, we used to play music by The Who. <laughs> we were all about Tommy. We used to do Hendrix. <laughs> we used to do The Rolling Stones, The Beatles. 
but for these hippies to come and tell us about seeing Hendrix at Woodstock or Slide the Family Stone, it was, <laughs> yeah, it was pretty amazing. I like that attitude that you've got with this because even in my my time researching, and, and I get this with many subjects and many many topics that you know you you'll start digging into whether it's climate change or you know marginalized communities, social inequalities, whatever there might be. And when I was re researching the the Navajo, and you get this wave of anger when you're reading these yeah. things, and and I think your approach is, I, I mean, you know, you're a better man than I am, and you're a much more mature man than I am. I think that's the anger doesn't get you where you want to go. I think it can only be achieved through trying to promote something positive and something good. And that seems to be exactly where you're coming from, rather than a place of screaming at uh, from the top of the mountains saying how the fuck is right. this happening no you know and it's, it's an it's an it's a, i mean maybe it is a generational thing i don't know but i mean i think it's just who i am it's my vibe i i could have been a younger person probably creating the same type of work i mean i would like to think there's some sense of urgency in the work but yeah it's not necessarily the aesthetic of um like it's not a, a constructivist <laughs> aesthetic there's not much of a punk aesthetic although i really gravitate to that I, it's coming from a place of love you know and i think um i don't think the work is necessarily saccharine you know it's not like a, a song by the osmond brothers or something but it's <laughs> hopefully uh, i had to, I had to <laughs> take, 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 take a shot at the osmond brothers there right <laughs> i feel like that was our first osmond reference on the podcast i'm really happy about that it was <laughs> they're, they're they're my neighbors to the north so um okay. yeah uh, Donnie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Big fan of the show, I hear. <laughs> Big fan of the Mormon the Mormon the Mormon Osmonds. Awesome. I guess we have been we've had you for so long. Uh let me just uh ask ask a question. Um can do you feel optimistic for the future of the the reservation and the people within it? Well, I mean I I, I feel morally obligated to say yeah. But I mean I I, I I can say that without um, feeling that um, I'm just giving a superficial answer. And I say that because I know of examples around the reservation of people from the community living in a sustainable way, doing um, sustainable agriculture with farmers markets, and in some sense returning to a full recognition of the older way people lived, you know, kind of going up at um, still taking part in society and culture. Um, and I think, you know, that message will continue to get out and touch people and um, keep people moving in the right direction. Um, we don't, this doesn't have to be part of the podcast, but I, I was actually just curious that does life on the reservation change depending on what administration is in the White House? No. Okay. Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> it does not. I, that's what, you know, to be honest, that's what I figured, but I was just curious. So there was a moratorium placed on uranium mining on the reservation in the 2000s, I think like 2005, maybe. With the pandemic that's happening now and the collapse of the uh, global economic, well, of global economic markets and, and systems, the Trump administration is focusing more on, you know, using 
domestic natural resources such as coal, oil, natural gas, and uranium. So there's um, an effort to um, start like mining uranium again on the reservation and transporting that across the reservation to a processing plant in Utah. The environment, so the Bears Ears National Monument is close to me. And I think, I forget what's being, what's available there. I think it's a natural mineral, um, I don't um, but it's going to be open to those interests. I don't think it's natural gas over there, but it may be. But that was like a national wildlife, um, not wa- it was a national monument, I think. Um, so it, it was protected from these mining interests. But uh, under the Trump administration, more of the land in and around the reservation that has natural resources that was being protected that many tribes identify as sacred mountains where they go to um, get herbs and mountains they pray to, to various gods who live there. The, the tribes are, are being impacted in that way with the push towards exploiting these, um, these resources. So that type of impact I think does vary from administration to administration because Obama, for example, um, pro protected the national the uh, Bears Ears National Monument so that the companies couldn't get to the natural gas. That's that's there. I think we've covered some pretty good ground. Amazing. Is there any any other? No. Well, it'll be interesting to hear how you uh, edit this, and um, I, I would appreciate it if you would include this in your podcast. But I do I do want to give a shout out to Football TV. Um, I want to give a shout out to Juxtapose Thank um, you. for giving me this opportunity. Yeah. And um, I'd also like to give a shout out to the emergency medical services here on the Navajo Nation. Um, they are pre, pre, predominantly young uh, Native people who um, are literally on the front line and going to people's homes to pick them up. Um, when many of uh, these patients are in the last stages of coronavirus and and um, they are truly on the front lines, exposing themselves um, and to the people working in healthcare and at the other front line professions. Um, I just want to recognize them and give them a shout out. Do you want to give us a link? And uh, then we'll not maybe... just here, actually, but around the world. Do, yeah. Do you want to put yeah, a link? And so then maybe, are... if, maybe if anyone listening is, is feeling like you've enjoyed this podcast, maybe you could reach out to them and see if there's a way they can donate something or help relief in some way. Hell yeah. You all stay stay safe and thank you again. Yeah, you, you as well. <laughs> the thing that we had the thing that we had was like we look at America a lot and when we look at America you guys have like big things like you're big. And we had the the newspapers came out with the headline protesters storm central London to demand the reopening of business. And then I looked at the article and it was just like 10 people standing with a couple of signs hugging to protest. I was like, yeah, I looked at Michigan and they're standing with like AR-15s. Look, here's the thing. I have a couple observations about these protests. One being that, um, why are they doing it on the weekends only? It feels very, it feels very work schedule, doesn't it? If you want the government to open, why are you protesting on a Saturday? Why don't you protest on a Monday or Tuesday? You know, like, I don't understand. So weird. Is that happening where you are? No. Well, no, it's happening in California, but in the in San Francisco area, it's not happening as much. They're actually, I think they did some sort of poll in the New York Times that 
the San Francisco area is the most likely to shelter in place and follow the rules. It's hilarious. All the liberals are going, no, it's, we'll keep, take away our freedom. Take away our freedom for a little bit longer. We're not ready yet. We're just not ready. It's really weird. It's such a, such a weird time. I know. It's such a weird twist. And it's also, I think, too, the Bay Area has so many tech jobs, so I think more people can work from home anyway. But I don't really feel like my freedom's been taken away, to be honest. Do you? I mean, I don't feel like any... I don't feel like one freedom has been taken away from me in, in, the, in the asking of sheltering in place. Only in that. I don't feel like a freedom's yeah. being taken away. I'm upset at the amount of freedom I currently have. I wish I had less freedom. Please, I'm like where I am just now, and it's uh, it's almost six o'clock on a Saturday night. It's 23 Celsius outside, so it's like, you know, the hottest day of the year so far. It's a gorgeous day, and outside we have, you know, it feels like, you know, it's like everyone's ready for a block party. I know that there's like part of that is a, a like part of the reason why I'm like, hey, I'm fine. Like, I don't feel like any of my freedom's been taken away. Like, I'm cool staying in my house so I don't die. I got diabetes. I don't want fucking coronavirus. I don't want to complicate this. And I, I know that comes from a place of privilege, but also like, no, just genuinely, I don't mind not getting other people sick. Like, I just don't mind. <laughs> I don't mind staying at home for a couple months and letting the world heal itself. Totally cool with that. What a good Samaritan. You know what I mean? Like, I, because I've been going through this, like, is this part of my privilege? But then I'm also like, no, actually, no, this is just genuinely, if I have the opportunity to not do a certain thing, I'm not going to do it. It's okay. I think in America, you view the notion of freedom in a different way than the rest of the world. Because we have, we, 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 we have equal freedoms. Every single country has a constitution. None of the other countries apart from the US know about what's in their constitution or what, you know, the, any amendments or anything like that. Nobody knows. In America, it's very, very different. So that, that in itself is a really hard thing to grasp and to challenge. Yeah, and I have two observations on this. One, it's amazing to me that the people that are protesting are protesting their inability to have freedom, and yet they are protesting an outside during a shelter in place, basically saying they have all the freedom in the world to still go outside and exercise their freedom. Totally fucking does not make sense to me. And second, I do. I feel like for everybody who has to go to work right now and and has you know service jobs and, and people who who need to you know, put food on the table and actually have the ability to go to work, we're staying at home so they're just a tad bit safer. I don't understand how that is such a politicized thing. There was a, there was a tweet I saw the other day and it was like, imagine if you're in London during the Blitz and there's one person sitting there going, you can't tell me not to turn on my light. I'll turn on my light whenever I want to turn on my light. And everyone's in a blackout. And you've got that one guy that's so adamant that their right to be able to turn on the light is greater than any of the other, any anything else in place. It's just so dumb, but we're just not equipped to be able to. And I wonder if there was people doing that. Oh, I'm I sure wonder if during that time. I'm trying to get <laughs> through this Dickens novel. I gotta keep the light on. Tell us what else is going on in Evan's world. Uh, we are about to launch the summer 2020 issue. So very exciting times. We used to care about events, but there's not a lot of events happening. So no. uh, just prepping an issue. What happened in the last week that was really cool? Uh, the Banksy thing was cool. I enjoyed that. 
a lot. So what, what's going on in your world? How are you doing? What have I been doing? I've been working a lot. Oh shit, I should pitch this thing, promote this thing. Yeah, so I've been working on a campaign with our good friend Charlotte Pyatt for, it's called Toward Tomorrow. We are, we are in the hunt. Uh, we've launched a competition collectively uh, to find- is a partner. Juxtapose is a partner. So this is very within the reason to be talking about this on the podcast. Uh, so we've, we've launched a competition. We're trying to find an artist one artist uh let me just get this right so we've launched this competition where we are trying to engage artists from around the world with the united nations 17 goals for sustainable development so the un have basically broken down into what we need for a sustainable and prosperous world into 17 chunks ranging from gender equality to um to no hunger to infrastructure support and we want artists to take to pick one of these goals and to reimagine it and to reinterpret it and then to post it online under the hashtag toward tomorrow tag us in it at toward dot 2030 and 17 winners will be selected to exhibit at an a exhibition um, later on this year. And one of those winners by June will be awarded 10,000 euros in cash. So it's a pretty good prize. 10,000 euros great is prize, like, what, man. what's that, like $11,000? Yeah, it's around 11,000, yeah. We're open all ages, all mediums. Only over 18s can win the 10,000, uh, the 11,000. Uh, dollars for kind of hopefully what are quite obvious reasons um but it doesn't matter what your level is what your medium is what your profession is if you're a professional artist or if you're a teacher that just dabbles it doesn't matter we want everyone that has any kind of creative bone in their body to submit something and we want to just pull these together in fact you're a judge on that <laughs> on that very thing you're one of the judges if you're sitting there just now and you have time to kill and you're creating and you want to help contribute to the dialogue to find that better world, that's the whole point of this. Pick a, pick one of the 17 sustainable goals for development and run with it. There, you know, whatever your thing, whatever means something to you, there's there's something in there that you that you can uh, connect your art with. with and and hopefully you know we'll see some really cool entries we've already started to see loads of really good entries so i'm hoping uh that plenty of our listeners get involved actually i noticed i noticed we got we got i just like to say thank you guys um for the messages for the support a lot of love coming after the cleon interview yeah you know what that was a i i feel like i've, I've gotten more comments about that one i think the last two zaria and this one i are in the cleon one um I like to thank Cleon for being so honest and open with us because I feel like that. Um, yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't our interviewing style. It, it was all Cleon. Yeah, I kind of feel like that was a uh, one of the one of the more honest interviews and open interviews he's given. It was. I thought it was fantastic. You know, I'm I'm glad that you guys responded well to it, and um, and I really enjoy when you guys chip in some um, chip in questions, chip in. Uh, who you want to hear on the podcast, like that stuff. Like we, we want to be able to just bridge that gap for you. So if there's someone that you're sitting there going, I really want to hear this person, we will try whenever we can to make that happen. Um, and if you all just at Banksy, get on the Radio Juxtapose podcast, uh, maybe he'll buckle. <laughs>